Hey, folks, and welcome to Ray Guns and Go-Go Boots. I'm Rick, and with me is Rich. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. And that was an incredible intro, as always. I was super energetic. <laughs> so tonight we are talking about the second season of the 1965... 63 to 65, so this season was 65. Yeah. Uh, yeah. American television anthology science fiction show, The Outer Limits. <laughs> As I recall, the intention was after sitting through Space 1999, we wanted something good, something yeah. fun, something pleasant. And I won't say that didn't happen, <laughs> but I won't say it did either. I think, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, well, well, I think there's some interesting discussions coming up. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, let's let's say that the metaphor of the seesaw will play quite a big part in tonight's discussion, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Uh, okay. This was a very uneven series. Yeah, it had its highs and its lows, didn't it? Yeah, that's for sure. I, I'm gonna I want to play a little game with you. There's one episode I absolutely could not make it through. That I I got halfway through it and I just I turned it off. And I went to I went online and I, I looked up the rest of the episode and I was very glad I turned it off. Care to take a guess which one that might be? I'm j I'm already scrolling through the uh, episode guide to just refresh my memories. Hmm. Oh, now I'm looking at Cry of Silence. I'm not answering yet. Cry of Silence. A couple find themselves lost in the deserted valley coming under attacks from tumbleweeds. But hang on. Let's not let's not rush. Um because there is Behold Eck. <laughs> That that it could have been that one, it could have been that. But I I don't know the hmm, the duplicate man, the brain of oh, there are so many. <laughs> you, just tell me, just tell me which you got it right the first time. It was cry of silence. Right, yeah, they were attacked by uh, tumbleweeds. <laughs> I've been trying to to get away from the. Let me read you what I wrote, but. Let me read you what I wrote. The first, the first thing I wrote about this episode, killer tumbleweeds. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really seriously. I made it as far as the scene where Eddie Albert was standing outside and, and the stagehands were throwing rubber frogs at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I, the, the thought of him, fighting with that tumbleweed yeah. pretending like it's got him <laughs> and it's just yeah i know exactly what you mean <laughs> now did I you make exactly. it through all the episodes i did okay i did and like i said that this was actually by chance my second viewing of them not that i'm a huge outer limits outer limits geek or anything it's just i i've seen them all before um it's a do you know what it's not the twilight zone no, despite it desperately it, wanting to be. Yeah, it's just, it's not the Twilight Zone. But at the same time, I I thought the good ones were good-ish. Oh, yeah. So well, some of them are really good. Uh, you know, like iRobot and uh, I, I, Demon with a Glass Hand wasn't bad. Uh, the Inheritors, the, two part, the two-parter was pretty good. Yep. Um, and the last episode, The Probe. Was was pretty good too, especially when you figure when it was made. The the concepts, you know, the the difference between the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits was that the Outer uh, the Twilight Zone, while yes, it was science fiction, they also they they didn't feel themselves locked into that 
that genre. They, you know, there was science fiction, there was fantasy, there was just weird. Uh, whereas uh, The Outer Limits, especially season two, which we watched, really focused on hard science fiction. Yes, it did. No doubt about that. And I found myself understanding why science fiction, especially television, televised science fiction, had such a crappy reputation for so long. It, the, there were a lot of things that were a symptom of their, the time they were made. Yes. And, I mean, the, I, I mentioned Behold Eck yeah. earlier. The, you know, special effects involved somebody drawing on the frame with <laughs> a pencil. That's, that's what you did. The killer cartoon. Although it got yeah. a little better as the episode went on. It, the, the, when you first saw Eck, and I was like, really? This is, this is the big bad for this episode? But as they went along, it, gains, it got, gained some dimensionality, and I think they, they did better with it. But yeah, that was – I mean, it, the concept was fine. Yeah. And the, and the, the performances were fine. Uh, I liked the dynamic of the, the guy arguing with his brother. You know, I could very much have seen my brother and me in that in that dynamic of of uh, you know the the one who's always been sort of irresponsible is the one who finds the alien that's that's killing people and befriends him and and is trying to help him and the 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 straight up normal good guy businessman brother is the one who's fighting against him and trying to to dis- to destroy the alien but in doing so would actually end up probably destroying the human race kind of thing it was it was a I, I liked that dynamic yes. It's it's very good. So, I I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Yes, we are. We are. We are. Is there anything we can say, or that you would like to say in particular, about the Outer Limits in general? Well, it it ran from 1963 to 65, as we said. Uh, there's some interesting things about it. It is one of, if not the first show to ever feel the sting of being moved into a shitty time slot and killed. It had a normal first season and had a pretty good following. And then in its second season, it got moved from... Monday nights and moved to 7.30 on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, which was kind of kind of the same as like what happened to Star Trek in its third season where it got moved to... Fr- you know, they get, it got moved to a time slot where its demographic, which was young, young men, were, they were out looking for young women. They weren't watching TV. And so it's, its ratings tanked and it got canceled halfway through its second season. Uh, so instead of a normal 36 episode season, there were only 17 episodes in the second season. It did feel very sure that that'll be why mm-hmm. it, ne- it never occurred to me that that could have happened to it. I just thought there were only 17 of them. Okay. Um, I suppose one of the advantages of an anthology show is you can just cancel it whenever you feel like it. Yeah. There's, there's no arc. There's no recurring characters. It is. It is feels like it's becoming increasingly less that networks just cancel shows partway through and you never find out what happens to stories and things like that these days. Well, if I were to to posit, I don't know this, but it could be that, you know, shows like this getting getting the rug pulled out from under them halfway through maybe why shows get 13 or, you know, uh, 26 or whatever uh, episode contracts with with networks now. Yeah, I I I suppose it could well be just to make sure you know what you've got to do. Yeah. Do that, and then we'll talk. I suppose so. Makes sense to me. And there were also a couple of lawsuits. Uh, well, one big one <laughs> by <laughs> what a shock, Harlan Ellison. 
that was indirectly, well, not indirectly, uh, directly. They, he didn't sue The Outer Limits, but he wrote two episodes for this season. Uh, the first one, Soldier, and, then, and also uh, Demon with the Glass Hand. And later, he successfully sued James Cameron, saying that Terminator was plagiarized from his scripts for from The Outer Limits. That feels harsh. I agree. That, um, oh. But apparently, the judge felt it had enough. Uh, had enough. Uh, uh, it was just. A, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the legal term? Uh, well, anyway, warranted was war- was warranted enough that they ended up settling out of court uh, for an undisclosed amount, and with James Cameron agreeing to uh, give Ellison a credit in the Terminator, uh, or give him a, a, an acknowledgement in the credits. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, you must have had some good lawyers. Well, Ellison, he, he he's really good at that. Remember his uh, City on the Edge of Forever stuff? No. Oh, you don't know about that? Oh, is this right? Okay, I had a feeling you were, you was kind of talking as if I knew something that I didn't <laughs> know, and that that makes sense now. What what's the city on the? So oh. this is the same person who wrote. Yeah, Har- Harlan Ellison is a, a very famous science fiction author, uh, but he's also a very famous curmudgeon, even when he was young, and uh, he wrote the original script for City on the Edge of Forever, which involved. A lot of very non-Star Trek stuff. It involved uh, drug dealing on the Enterprise. The the uh, you've seen the episode, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you know how McCoy accidentally injects himself with this super drug and then goes back in time and and ruins everything. Well, yep. in the original script, it had nothing to do with that. It was it was there was a, a a black market drug trade on the Enterprise below decks, and it was somebody who overdosed and then went back and and screwed up time. And understandably, Roddenberry went, yeah, that's not really our gig here. Um, but in classic Roddenberry fashion, instead of going, well, we don't like it, but uh, you know, we'll pay you to, to rework it for us, he just rewrote it himself. And Ellison was in litigation with them for decades on it. And it was only within the last 10 years that they finally settled with him or, or finished the lawsuit or, or whatever, or paid him off. I'm not sure what exactly the... the the denouement of that was, but uh, it was a rather long, lengthy, drawn-out thing with Paramount basically saying "fuck you" and Ellison going "oh really?" <laughs> yeah. Um, I was say if he wrote it, he wrote it. Yeah, um, it, it's worth a read. It's it's pr- you can probably I think I read it on the internet years ago. It's it's a really good story. It's just not Star Trek, uh, which the yeah the only problem I can see with that without knowing anything more about it than what you just told me is it feels like the story of an underground drug trade on the Enterprise. I, I, I like that concept, but it's much more sort of gen, next-gen Deep Space Nine era Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, that is kind of a story in itself. Yeah. You know, what? whereas someone overdosing and going back in time changing history, that's that's the point of the story. So... I, I think what they eventually did just got it out of the way because it kind of wasn't important how it happens. The point is time is messed up. We have to put time right. Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to let Joan Collins get run over. Um, also for uh, The Outer Limits, the uh, the first season uh, apparently had a lot of studio meddling. Um, right. And they were, they, they were, I don't think it's contractually obligated, but the the, the studio, 
the from the suits set basically said each show was to have a monster that they called the bear and there were a few episodes in season two that we watched that had that like the the megazoid and things like that yeah but apparently every episode in season one except for with a couple of exceptions had to have a bear in it which i think led which eventually led to uh uh the one of the producers leaving, he, he just got tired of it, especially when they, when they changed their time slot. Uh, he just went, that's it. I'm out of here. Now I'm actually wondering if I've seen season one, it seems very odd that I would watch season two and not season one. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't, I haven't really had time to, I barely had time to watch this one. That's what, sorry. It's been so long folks. Life has been rather busy. <laughs> so they understand I, this is a slow show. Yeah. This one's, this one's going to take a while. I think I'm wondering now if I watched it for the William Shatner episode and then just kind of carried on through. I think I might have done. Could be. Yeah, that would make sense. Because there's so many people in these. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if we will rather than do it now, take it when we do an episode at a time. But there's still so many people that you recognize in these shows. Mm -hmm. It must have been a nice little melting pot for new young actors to just get some work and. Oh, yeah. Be, be on TV, get a bit of exposure. I mean, there's a lot of Enterprise crew members in this series. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 that, that's my favorite part about watching these old things is you're, you're going along and you're like, whoa, that's – wait, who is it? And you look them up and you're like, right, it's that guy <laughs> or that girl in, in some yeah. instances. I, I find it weird that I don't always recognize names out of context. There's a James Doohan episode. Oh, yeah. Which is so weird hearing him talk without the accent. That really blew my <laughs> mind. Like, why is why is Scotty talking like that? Stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't. That was his real voice. Um, he kept expecting him to slip. And it's like, no, yeah. that's the normal one. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, and, but I saw his name in the opening credits and was just sad. Like, James Doohan, who's... God, I know I know that name from somewhere, but I'm just drawing a blank on it. And if you, of course it's Scotty. Yeah. But just taken out of context, just show me the name. And it, it threw me entirely. I'm clearly not a very bright person. I think that's what the problem is. Well, I think also it's because it's T, they're, they're mostly TOS people. I think if, if uh, you know, if it was, if it was uh, LeVar Burton, I don't think you'd have that problem. Oh, uh, maybe so. Maybe so. I didn't, mind you, I, you, I recognize Shatner. Well, who who doesn't? <laughs> that that's very true. <laughs> Plus, that episode is the reason we chose season two. So, yeah. So, should we should we get started on, yeah. on plowing let's, through? And, let's go ahead and dive in. Yeah, especially since the first episode, Soldier, prominently features a very prominent Star Trek uh, guest star. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, Michael Ansara, who plays uh, whatever the guy's name is, uh, the soldier, played Kang, the the, the Klingon Kang in uh, in both TOS and Deep Space Nine. He did indeed. Mm-hmm. He did indeed. Gosh, and he's still. Oh wait, no, he died. No, he passed away okay. a couple of years ago. Yes. Oh, ninety-one though. Well done, sir. Oh, that long. Um, oh. No, no, he was 91. Sorry. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> he died in 2013. Okay, yeah. At the age of 91. I was, I was congratulating him on re- reaching the age of, of 91, which yeah. is a, an achievement in and of itself. Have you ever heard any of his singing? 
I may well have done now because I'm seeing him on so many things and clearly I've seen him a lot. Yeah, he he had he put out a couple of records uh, back in my parents' day. He did a, a, a song, the song I'm familiar with, if, if you ever get a chance to look it up, is uh, Who Will Answer? And it's, you know, it's just, you know, classic, semi-religious kind of croony sort of thing that, uh, that you know, your grandparents would have dug in the back in the 40s. Um, right. Maybe my grandparents. <laughs> um, but we have a, uh, the, the, the soldier, we have two soldiers on a futuristic battlefield wearing very silly outfits. And they get blasted back in time, as often happens. As yeah, as as often. I like the uh, the self lighting cigarettes. Oh, the the tr- the trouble that would solve. <laughs> Honestly, oh god, self lighting cigarettes. That would be fantastic. Yeah, says the person who's clearly not going to give up anytime soon. There we go. No, um, it's it's you know when you think about the the assumption that cigarette technology would progress was one of the most wrong things that was predicted in the 50s yes that's very true like no guys we're gonna find out they kill us all so <laughs> sorry tim o'connor is in this as well who i always mistake for uh oh my god the name's gone goldicott oh oh uh michael amo yes i always get him and tim o'connor mixed up tim o'connor is probably quite well known for being in Buck Rogers as well as guest starring on the Oh right right Star Do- Trek. he was the yeah that's the right pro- is it professor no he's not professor Dr Ellis Hauer yeah Hauer. Elias Hauer that's right it's been a while since I've watched Buck Rogers uh yeah and I always get him mixed up with Mark Alamo because he looks like what I imagine Mark Alamo to look like when he's not a Cardassian <laughs> okay yeah i forgot he was in there the, this one the the this was the first episode of the season and i was watching it mostly when i was riding my exercise bike and so i don't have any notes on this one uh but this so this is actually one that uh james cameron was sued over then yes this was the this was the one now it's funny when i when i read i was reading the the trivia on demon with the glass hand that one reminded me more of terminator than this one did but this was the one that Ellison sued Cameron over. He he said that Cameron plagiarized Soldier, which I you know the the premises are vaguely similar. But I mean, aside from a, a you know a, a fighting being going back in time, I really don't see anything else that's similar to it. But me either. I mean, it, it's not as part of like a f- change the future kind of plan or anything like that it actually reminds me of a next gen episode um one of the early ones with james cromwell in where he has the terrible mustache and there are the soldiers <laughs> who are bred as killing machines and they oh have right like, yeah can they be rehabilitated and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. you know it was actually a little bit similar to that yeah i really don't understand the the that Ellison was able to successfully sue over this episode for Terminator. Now, if it was Demon with the Glass Hand, which we'll get to later, that I could see. That was a lot more similar. But, you know, uh, I I wasn't there in the court, so... <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I actually never finished this episode. Uh, I got to, to the point where uh, the scientist takes Quilo or whatever his name is to his house, which made no 
fucking sense whatsoever. Yeah. What what I will say is they all end. I, I I'm tr- struggling to remember the exact ending. They all ended in exactly the way you expected them to end. There were no twists in the Outer Limits. Well, I, I wouldn't say no twist, but there, you know, once it once it took the twist somewhere in the episode, the ending progr- the, the I think the episode progressed to where you would expect it to go. Yeah, um, I I didn't find them as it's kind of as well written as the the Twilight Zone. Yeah, it, it's more varied in subject matter. Kind, well, no, no, no. Hang on, no. I'm 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 over blaming the Twilight Zone for all being about a guy lost in the middle of nowhere, um, <laughs> but it's like all of these. It felt kind of like the Diet Coke of science fiction television. I'll buy that. Yeah, yeah. I I remember uh, watching uh, when I was watching. Um, oh, what's the one with the. Uh, um, Hang on, what's it called? The Premonition. And I was starting to get really worried about the kid, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're not going to kill a kid on this show. <laughs> God, no. God, no. No, nothing like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, just not that... Uh, I'm getting down on it. <laughs> well, no, no, I just... I found myself doing the same thing where it was like, oh, this is going to... Oh, no, it's not. They're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thinking doesn't come for another 20 years or so. So it was it was it was pretty much a linear progression in most of the episodes. It really was. But again, I'm going to throw it back to 1965. That's, that's yeah. what we can blame this all on. It was made in 1965. That's just all there is to it. In some ways, there were a lot of concepts that I thought were quite forward thinking. Oh, for yeah. The mid 60s. I'm struggling to name one now we're discussing it, but there, there were things there that made me think, hmm, not bad there. Well, every now and then they got the science right. You know, you'd say, you, like, um, oh, what was, what was it called? Was it correct? No, that's, uh, no, no, no. Um, what was the one where they made the planet? Expanding human. Expanding human. There it is. Um, no, 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 no. Did I not take no the one where they they oh, made yeah. they made the little planet in the room and the the spandex monster kept stalking Wolf, the guy? Wolf 359. Oh, that is Wolf 359. Okay. Yeah, Which, sorry my mistake. Hey, hey. Nice title, eh? <laughs> yeah. That might come up again later someday. Um may, may will do. You know, aside from the absolute ludicrous premise of creating a planet in a in a room, um you know, they they said that the, you know, the planet was several light years away and accurately said how long it would take to get there and stuff. So I was like, Oh, you do understand the word billion. Very good. <laughs> yeah, they did. Um, they had trouble with the word robot on occasion. <laughs> robot. <laughs> robot. <laughs> like what's a robot? <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> That's that. It, you've heard Jason talk about robots, I presume. Yeah. Is it, is it a, no, a like a, for, people further north than you. yeah it, it's it's a it's a, a a northern dialect from the like new england and new york and stuff like that they they do say robot yeah of course i'm realizing now just classifying people as north of you that's most of the <laughs> population of the, of the country, united yeah. states isn't it <laughs> although the funny thing is even though we are geographically south of quote-unquote the south we're not really considered part of it down here in florida really yeah 
I didn't know that. It's a matter of most of the people in Florida, at least up until about maybe 20 years ago, were transplants from the north. Okay. Uh, you know, a native Floridian was a rare thing back when, like, my wife was born in Miami. And finding an actual native of Florida was kind of a rare thing back then. And it's it's becoming less so now. Am I right in thinking that it had a reputation as being a, re- a co- where you go to retire? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. The... the, the the line is home of the newlywed and nearly dead. It's a, uh, you know, you go here for your honeymoon and when you're on the verge of death. Yeah, we, we have a town called Bournemouth. It's where our old people go. Mm-hmm. It's on the south coast. It has nice beaches that they sit on in deck chairs. It's, it's lovely. But it's <laughs> populated entirely by the over 75s. Uh-huh. Not, it's not really that bad, but it might as well be that bad. Let's move on to episode two, Cold Hand's Warm Heart. Okay. The Shatner one. The Shatner one. Now we're serious. <laughs> now we're cooking on heart. And we have, heart. we have three Trek references in this one. We have Shatner, of course, who is the ultimate reference, working on Project Vulcan. And his doctor, did you recognize him? I didn't, know. A man by the name of Malachi Throne, who I'm played... Commodore Menendez in The Menagerie, which was the two-part TOS episode they made out of The uh, the Cage. Yes. No, I did not recognize him at all. <laughs> not at all. But okay. And yeah, I see on his IMDb, I kind of recognize him a bit now. Yeah. I've not really seen that episode a lot. Oh, he was in uh, Next Gen as well. Yeah. Yeah, he so played the uh, Pen... 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 Pardak. Pardak. Yep, the Romulan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Visionaries, Knights of the Magical Light. That's that's just a kids' TV show. But I, <laughs> okay. I, I enjoyed that one. The figures had holograms on them. You see, that ah. that was the gimmick with that one. Okay. That was, that was the gimmick. It, it, if I was I was nine, it was brilliant. That's the, anyway. <laughs> so he's yeah. he's been to Venus. Yeah, that's right. The killer Muppet. <laughs> And uh, he's cold now when he gets home. Yeah. It's a perfectly fine half hour of television. Yeah, except it you know, was 42 minutes long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the problem with a lot of these. Same, same as we kind of saw in, in, uh, in Space 1999, I think, is that maybe it's just our, our you know, 21st century sensibilities, having grown up watching things get faster and faster, but... There were a lot of times in a lot of these episodes where it was just like, will you get on with it? Um, yes, there were. Yes, there were. I really felt the difference between these episodes and the Twilight Zone half hours. It did drag on a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I get that. I, I think the kind of problem you, you face as a writer on a show like this is that you have to create your entire universe for your story within one episode of the show. This isn't like writing Star Trek where we've established who these characters are and what they're doing and that sort of thing. And we're just getting another adventure. Um, and, and so as a writer, to cram a whole universe into an hour must be a very difficult thing to do. But I kind of feel like it's... At an hour, it's not short enough to be a short thing, and it's not long enough to be feature length. Yeah. And it feels like this really odd in-between kind of time period. 
I, I honestly think it would have it would have benefited as a show from being either half an hour shorter or half an hour longer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, in in nineteen sixty four, sixty five, there's no way you're making hour and a half long TV shows. No, they they were still doing things like thirty five minute long shows and fifteen minute shows at this point. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, and the, even, I, I was sorry, I was just going to say, even when we do it now, I'm thinking of Sherlock as an example. You do that and you get three episodes in a season. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, I, 25. It's like we we kind of take for granted that a show is either half an hour or an hour long or on the rare occasion, 90 minutes or two hours. Always these these 30-minute blocks. But that wasn't always the case. I know you, you guys still do some shows that like will start at, at like, 745 or something like that don't you or is that kind of stopped now that's kind of stopped now yeah i i can't think of anything because do you know what it annoys people and it, it it annoys them after your show is finished i think because if you're sat there watching tv that's what you're doing with your evening you want to move from one program to the next and we've got into this system this unwritten rule that things will start on the hour or at half past yeah and if yours finishes at quarter past, I've got nothing to do for the next 15 minutes. You've just you've just destroyed the next 15 minutes for me. I can't put on another show. They've all started 15 minutes ago. So it just really annoys people when they do that. So I just think people don't do it anymore. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that until before we started this show when I was trying to find series to watch. And I, I did some you know Google search of 50s and 60s TV. And what I found were TV listings, and you would see shows that would start, you know, 510, 4.45, 6.35, stuff like that. And it had been so long since I'd seen stuff like that, I'd, I'd forgotten that there were, you know, they just sort of started shows willy-nilly, you know, back then. Yeah, the only time, I think the last kind of thing we kind of prominently had it with might have been sort of within the news that you would break down from national to local news, and maybe that would be split up in the half hour. But I think they've expanded that out now. So you have half an hour of national, half an hour of local news, and the obviously half hour of local news is reasonably grim and boring. Yeah. Um, today in Leeds, nothing happened. It's <laughs> Leeds. What? What? But we've got half an hour to fill, so here we go. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of thing. Um, so it was nice to see that Shatner was playing Kirk long before he played Kirk. He's only ever played Kirk, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we also saw uh, a a motif that would carry on through most of the episodes, which was the relationship between our protagonist and his wife and or girlfriend. Please explain further. Well, uh, you know, a big part of Cold Hands, Warm Heart was how the relationship between Jeff Barton and his wife. Uh, what's her name? It doesn't say. Geraldine Brooks. Ger- Geraldine um his wife's Anne Barton. Anne, okay. Uh, yeah. You know, we see her trying to help him and, and him becoming more increasingly addicted to her. And then she's the one that pulls him out of it and makes him all better. And, and uh, you know, the the importance of the, uh, the, the, the male-female relationship. Not, I'm not saying that as, a, as opposed to same-sex because, of course, they're not going to talk about that. But just the, the, the dynamic between the romantic couple plays a big part in almost every episode it's interesting for the time period that they took it in a way that it's the woman who saves the man 
from the peril that he's in. Yeah. In some of them. Some of them are so unbearably sexist. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll, we'll get to those, but... Uh, but this one wasn't one of those. This one, you know, the the trope of the the strong woman behind the the hero very much plays out in this one. Yes, I would say so. This one's definitely worth a watch. Oh yeah, and you know, Shatner. A lot of people dismiss him, but I don't know if I ever told you this story. One of my teachers when I was an undergrad, a guy by the name of Bob Dietz, who was, you know, a thousand years old, but one of those guys that you just felt privileged to be in his class. Yeah. Um, he was a, a, a directing teacher. And even though I was a tech student, everybody had to take one class of directing, one class of acting, one class of tech so that everybody knew what everybody else was going through. And we were in class one day and Shatner came up. And I, I think we were just talking about Star Trek and some, somebody mentioned Shatner. And Deitch just goes, I am so disappointed in him. And we're all like, uh-huh. <laughs> and apparently... Before Shatner hit it big, he was he worked with Dietz in Canada, and Dietz was like, the man was a phenomenal Shakespearean actor, but then once he got on that TV show, he just got lazy and he stopped acting. <laughs> really? And we're all, you know, our jaws are on the floor, because it, it wasn't even that he was dropping a name. He was just, he was honestly... I'm so disappointed in that boy kind of thing, as opposed to, well, let me tell you about the time I worked with Bill Shatner. You know, it was, Dietz was like that. He would, he would drop names, but not in a way to impress you. He would just like say somebody's first name and later he would find out that Bob was Bob Fosse or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you see, I knew Shatner had done Shakespeare, particularly sort of post uh, Star Trek. Yeah. But I just assumed it was awful. I, I I feel like I'm being mean to Shatner now. He's not as bad as I'm making out, and I love watching him. It's isn't that kind of what you want from an actor? I it's it's. It, I I think you could do there. There will have been thesis. What's the plural of a thesis? Theses mm-hmm. written on this. Is a good actor somebody who is just watchable? Someone who draws you into whatever they're doing, even if their characterization isn't at its best? Like Shatner, you know? T.J. Hooker was Kirk as a cop, and Denny Crane was Kirk's lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care about any of that. I watched every single bit I could get my hands on, and I loved every bit of it. And... Isn't that as valid as somebody who could just start Hamlet at any given moment and give the best performance of Hamlet you've ever seen? But that there maybe it's not as comfortable watching them. Maybe they're just a bit intense and you can only take so much of it. Well, you uh, let me you've made movies. Have you ever have you ever performed? No. Okay, I have, and I suck. <laughs> you know, I can I can memorize lines. I can get up on stage and, and do stuff. Uh, I can play big, broad character pieces. Uh, but if you ask me to do something subtle, I'm terrible at it. I've had a, a few students have put me on, on camera before, and I'm even worse because I just don't do small. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a stage-trained actor, and even at that, I'm I'm not 
I would not even remotely call myself a good actor. Okay. Anybody that can get up, get in front of a camera and give you a performance that you believe, in my opinion, is a good actor. And you know what really convinced me of Shatner's talent? Did you ever hear that that audio that was going around the internet for a while where Shatner was doing a voiceover car, uh, commercial? I don't even remember what it was for. And he 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 reads the ta- he reads the copy and you hear the 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 engineer in the booth go, "Okay, um that was that was great, Mr. Shatner, but we need more energy. Can you do any and he starts giving him these really stupid uh directions. And and Shatner goes, "You know, <laughs> what?" You know, it, it it was a little bit of how dare you tell me what I just did wasn't flawless. But then the guy goes, you know, well, can you and Shatner, <laughs> the guy goes, well, we need we need more energy. And it was obvious this guy was not in any way had any idea what he was talking about. He yeah. just thought I'm going to I'm going to direct this guy, even though I've never directed anything in my life. And Shatner just tore him apart without being rude or anything. He's like, no, no, t- tell me what you want from this. And and the guy reads it. He's like, you know. This new beer is wonderful and tasty, and I want you to buy it now. And Shatner goes, all right, all right, that's what you want. Let's do it. And so he goes, okay, action. And Shatner did it exactly syllable for syllable the way the guy did it. After only hearing it once and not believing his ears when he heard it. And then the guy was like, all right, I'm sorry. It's like, no, that's, that's what you wanted. That's what you asked me to give you. you. You really have to look this up. It's genius. And the fact that he was able to do that with you know just hearing the guy once and then perfectly imitate him i was like wow that was impressive even though he was you know raking the guy over the coals he did it in such a genius way without without anyone being able to say you were a dick to that guy he was like no that's what he told me to do i did what he told me to do shatner is you have to have a gigantic ego to be as successful as he is you do and we give actors a whole lot of shit for that but you can't not believe in yourself and make it in this business. It's a really rough business. And so, yes, he was a dick to his co-stars during the TOS days, and he's admitted that. And I think he kind of went a little too far the other way of buffooning, of uh, lampooning himself in the in the eighties and nineties and two thousands. But you know what? You can't fault the guy for his dedication, his drive, his talent, and his ability. And I think that really shines in in this episode. It, it's yes, we're kind of seeing Captain Kirk, but I think it's more a matter of this is how Shatner plays his leading men, and uh, and he, I think he did a great job. I I just agree with you totally there. I have nothing to add to that. That that is perfect. Let's move on. Let's move on to Behold Eck and the Killer Cartoon. <laughs> I right the the concept is fine. Yeah. The the optician accidentally makes a lens. That allows you to allows him to see a two dimensional being stranded in our three dimensional world, and it is he a bad guy? Is he not? What what's going on? And the story unfolds. Yeah, I, I the, the the trouble is what people are going to see straight away is that yeah, it's it's technically a cartoon baddie. Uh, monster, but I I would argue it's, it's barely even that. You know, don't think like Disney level or anything. Yeah. It literally does look like somebody drew on the the frame with a, a crayon. Yeah. Um, and that looks like it does. <laughs> um, and you, 
you kind of have to, and I've said this about original series Star Trek from time to time, you kind of just have to abandon what you're looking at and try and accept what they're trying to represent. And I almost try and see it like it's a play on on stage. That I mean, you, you'll know this. There are so many things in plays. You're not doing that on a stage. Yeah. And so the audience... But with plays, we accept that. And so we just move along with it. You know, um, how often a play is set in one set. And, you know, everything will take place in this one set. Um, you just abandon realism and go with what they're representing and with behold Ek, you have to do that yeah i i will admit that at first i i i was like all right we've got a we've got a cartoon threatening these people but then as the episode got in i i kind of forgot that and i let it go because it is a really good story it is and it, it just proves what you really need is just a good concept and a good story and how it appears becomes less important well, you, you know what really sold me on it? And it was in the last two minutes of the episode where, uh, well, okay, folks, the episode is this two-dimensional being somehow gets trapped in our world. And he comes through a, a, a dimensional rift that's hovering over, what is it, Times Square or something like that? Or whatever, yes. wherever this, this, whatever town they're in. And he's got to get back to this dimensional rift because if anything other than him goes through it, it will destroy both universes. He's from a two-dimensional universe. And by being in our universe, he's causing havoc. He's like cuts a building in half and blows up labs and stuff uh, just by being there, by accidentally cutting through power lines and shit. Just, But if you turn sideways, you, you can't see him because he's two-dimensional. Yeah. And uh, this optician and his secretary, and again, we've got that dynamic. They're not romantically linked, at least not that they show in the episode. But there's definite, definitely this relationship between the guy and his secretary. And he's made these lenses out of, out of meteorite glass or something like that. And they allow him to see Ek, who's this, this being. And, of course, the military is trying to find out what is going around destroying buildings. And, and uh, I don't think it – did it kill anyone or did it just I, – I think as part of cutting a building in half, people were injured. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely something you would expect the military to look into. Yes, yeah. I think it's the best way of putting it. <laughs> if I, I imagine if a building in New York was cut in half tomorrow, the shit would hit the fan yes. one way or another. Just sliced. I actually quite liked the uh, almost matte painting thing they did of that. that was, yeah, that, that was wasn't bad. Cool. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is that Eck can't see the rift because he's 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 not used to living in a three three-dimensional universe and so he's created these analogs of eyes on his body but they don't really work all that well and he can't see the rift to get back into it and so he needs the optician to make a lens to work on his kind of eye so he can see the thing and the you know the optician is the only one who's who's got the the formula for making these lenses and it's you know the details of the story are a little wonky but uh, you know ultimately they make the lenses and and Ek passes through a TV screen and and charges himself and and it gets a little strange but you know what really sold me on the episode in the last like minute they make the lens and they hand it to Ek and he starts to go through the wall and I was like. Oh, how is the lens going to go through the wall? 
and he, it stopped and he couldn't take the lens through the wall. Of course. Yes. And I was like, you know, if this was lost in space, he'd have been gone. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't have even hesitated to have the thing pass through the wall. But their attention to detail was brilliant in this show. They didn't let stuff like that just slide. And that impressed me. Yeah, I, I, I did notice that. I did notice that at the time. And you're absolutely right. It, it's good that they take the time to think these things through. <laughs> Because, you know, when we're watching sci-fi, these are the things as fans that we notice yeah. when they screw up things like that. So it, it's good to know that someone involved in the making and it cares as much as the audience does. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like in, in uh, Terminator 2 when the T-1000 oozes through the, 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 the barred door in the asylum and, yes, and, and, he, and the gun stops him and he has to stop and turn the gun so it goes through the bars, that, that kind of thing. Something that if they didn't do it, you probably wouldn't notice. But since they did do it, you go, ah, oh, very nice. Yeah. Thanks. For, yeah. Thank you for doing that. I, yeah. yeah. I'm with you. Episode four. The Expanding human. human. I'm doing my own version of that slowly at home. <laughs> yeah. I've decided this summer my goal is to stop expanding and kind of reduce a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just need to cut down on the takeaway. That would do it. Yeah. But this is this is the James Doohan episode. This is the episode that caused me to tweet something like, if you are pushed down in the 60s, you will lose consciousness for 15, <laughs> 20 minutes. Because that, that happens a lot in this one. Yeah. Oh, I've fallen down. I must not get up. Because that would complicate the choreography. You know, all this stuff. Yeah, this was, this was kind of a, a, a riff on... Frankenstein and on the on kind of the hippie drug culture, I think. Right. You know, and 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 also taking a dig at academics who who are more concerned with with you know, I I wonder if this was a dig at Timothy Leary. Yeah, Timothy Leary was the was the the guy who was uh, all about taking LSD and expanding your consciousness and stuff. Right. Cuz this this takes place on a on a college at a college campus where uh, a guy is a, a, a night watchman is murdered and some some drugs are stolen. And uh, Jimmy Doohan is a, a cop who's investigating it. And then we have two, two Star Trek guest stars as our as our chief antagonists. The professor, the, the scientist, the guy who's who's the big bad guy who, who ends up like trying to kill everybody. Yeah. He he was on Star Trek twice. He was Melikon, the the big bad Nazi guy in the the Nazi episode Patterns of Force. Yep. And he was also Doctor Severin, who was the leader of the space hippies in that charming Way to Eden. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And his brother-in-law was on the episode The Apple, where the they were feeding Val the dragon computer thing. Uh, he he played Akuta, the 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 leader of the the feeders of Val. So remember, think of him in a loincloth painted red. I I know the one you speak of. <laughs> I I enjoyed this one, you know. Yeah, it was very Jekyll and Hyde kind of creepy, but still enjoyable. I I had no problems with this episode. And as we said earlier, it's just interesting seeing James Doohan in something not being Scottish. Yeah. He's not really Scottish. 
I keep having to tell myself that. He's the opposite of David Tennant, who I have to convince myself is Scottish. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. had to sit down the first time I saw David Tennant on something that wasn't Doctor Who. Why is he talking like that? Why Why would he? That's not what's he doing. What, it was just a normal TV show. He was actually guest presenting it. And he came out and started talking all Scottish. And it's like, yeah, he's, he's Scottish. So he will talk like that, won't he? Yeah. My first time I saw him non-Doctor Who was on a, a clip from the Graham Norton show. And so not only was he being Scottish, but he was also being uh, rather randy as well. And uh, Yeah, the Graham Norton show's a bit <laughs> on the edge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a shit. You know, he, he came over here uh, for, for one year. They, they, they called it the Graham Norton Experiment to see if, if uh, his show would take off over here, and it didn't, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, so we, it, we, know, we know about him over here. It's a, yeah, we're always kind of surprised when people know of Graham Norton in other places. He's such an odd one here. Yeah. He actually started... Oh, I'm going to show age now. I think the late 90s, maybe mid-90s, with like a late-night talk show that eventually was perhaps one of the the only ones here to go nightly. Hmm. I know you guys have got... Every channel's got its own nightly talk yeah. show. We don't have that. We get bored of things very easily. If we've watched it, we don't want to see it again tomorrow night. Um, and so he had one of the first ones that just went nightly. He was, he's been huge here for, for years and years. Um, and now he most famously does uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, really? Uh, commentary, yeah. Okay. That's a big deal because um, it, it used to be something that was taken seriously. <laughs> and then over the years, it became taken far less seriously. And the further away we get from us last having won it, the less seriously we're ever going to take it. <laughs> the, we being the people of Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And so it became a point of uh, the, the man who used to commentate on it was a, a, another Irish uh, radio uh, presenter called Terry Wogan. Who, who was just a staple of British television beyond... I've actually heard that name. Yeah. I think maybe on Monty Python they might have mentioned him or made fun he, of him or something. He's been around on television all my life and, and, and way back. Um, and he, he famously had always done the Eurovision commentary and he lost respect for it and just started taking the piss out of it. <laughs> and it became one of the most watched things on television because you just wanted to hear Terry Wogan take the piss out of Eurovision because that's why you were watching it. <laughs> um, and so when he retired from doing it, he was replaced by Graham Norton. And that was considered such a, you know, it was on a par with who's replacing Letterman. Oh, really? You know, who's okay. going to do if Terry Wogan's not doing the Eurovision Song Contest anymore, you might as well just not show it was the attitude. But Graham Norton does a wonderful job and he just sits there and takes the piss out of it for three hours. He doesn't really commentate. He just makes jokes about the whole thing. <laughs> um, to the point where at the last one, he's, he was so they turned the Eurovision cameras on him and a kind of <laughs> everybody look at the English guy that just comes and makes fun. And he's like, I'm Irish. Leave me alone. Thank you. Bye. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone else takes it really, really fucking seriously. And we don't give a shit. We just turn up to mess about. 
I I swear it's we should not go really if we were being polite. You know, if you're not going to play properly, you shouldn't you shouldn't ruin it for everyone else. But it's so much fun. I'm actually stunned that it hasn't caught on over here, and you know, since since the age of internet, where it could very easily be seen over here. Uh, well, all, all the music is awful. That's that's a great deal to do with it. It's all awful. Well, I know that's I'm. I mean, we are the country that loves a good train wreck, and I'm I'm. That's why I'm I'm stunned that it hasn't uh, hasn't caught on over here, or that yeah. nobody's tried to catch it on over here. Um, you never know. I believe Australia are allowed to take part in the next one. So the concept of being it being a, a, a song for Europe sort of thing is is gone out the window. Hmm. And but no one good writes the music because no one good wants to risk their reputation on a shit singing <laughs> contest. I remember asking my dad, why don't we just send the Beatles every year? Why didn't we do that when the Beatles were a band? Wouldn't we have just won every Eurovision if we had John Lennon and Paul McCartney write every song? And the answer was, what if they didn't win? You know, that would just make them look terrible. And it's true. No one good writes songs. No one famous goes and does it. It's all, might as well be you and me, really. Yeah. And you get to find out how weird all the other people of Europe are. They all like some weird stuff. <laughs> they really do. We're way off here, aren't we? <laughs> so that, that, next, that was a good one. one. Is, uh, yeah, I, I think I don't think there's really much else to say about expanding human. It's, it was a good, solid episode. Not great, not terrible. It was just, it was good. Yeah. Um, it, the next one, though, I think was fantastic. Demon, Demon with a glass hand. Absolutely, I I really enjoyed this one. Um, you know, as, aside from the silly con- costumes that the future guys were wearing, um, but again, like you said, we have to. You know, this is 1960. Five, we have to kind of let that go or six, October 16th, 1964. Sorry. Um, and here we have Robert Culp, who was very big in the, in the sixties and seventies and a young, staggeringly gorgeous woman by the name of Arlene Martell, uh, who would later go on to play to bring Spock's wife. She would indeed. Mm hmm. God, this is, it's really just a new Star Trek series, this, isn't it? It's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when, when she came on the screen, I was like, is that, is that, that is, yeah. And oh, gosh, she did the Star Trek of Gods and Men thing a few I, years ago. I have, I still need to watch that one. I've, I've oh, seen it's... a lot of the Star Trek fan stuff I haven't seen of Gods and Men yet. It's, it's awful. Yeah, I was afraid. That's kind of why I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's awful awful or i it makes you feel really bad for all the people involved really bad for them in a have you really got nothing better to do kind of way Mm. it's i thought it was just atrocious just really atrocious and tim russ has got really fat (laughs) oh tim russ fuck him I mean, that's it, isn't it? He's awful. I mean, this is why you have to look at actors and go, why have you got free time? Because nobody will pay you to act. (laughs) Well, did I ever tell you about about my attempt to get Tim Russ to come on the Starbase? No. No, I I will give him props for being one of the few people that actually answered uh, when we tried to contact him. Uh, But, you know, I sent him an email. I was like, hey, you know, we've got this show. We'd love to talk to you. You know, would you come on? Because it's not like, like you said, it's not like you're doing anything. Um, and he, he answered. He said, uh, 
Well, I tell you what, why don't you send me the questions you want to ask and I'll record the answers and then you can just make it sound like we're talking. What? What? Yeah. And at first I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's got to be more work for him than just yeah. getting on with it and just, doing just the damn show. Get on the phone for 10 minutes, you know. We don't we don't don't want a whole day out of you. We just <laughs> Tim yeah. Ross, you weirdo. <laughs> okay. But anyway, Demon with a Glass Hand, which I found the, the title a little odd because I don't, you know, nobody ever called the dude a demon. But guy wakes up in and now they, you know, they they really were all about setting this stuff as contemporarily as possible, I guess, for budgetary reasons. Even when it was in the future, it still looked like now with a video phone yeah. or something. And now being 1964. Uh, guy wakes up, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he is. Uh, all he knows is, is he uh, some uh, mechanized voice tells him, like, you know, run Luke. And uh, people are chasing him, and he he slowly starts to remember that he's 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 got a glass hand. That's you know, <laughs> for most of it, he's doing like the demon horns kind of rock and roll thing. Yes, he is, <laughs> isn't he? Uh, and he's got a he, it, it, his hand is a computer, and it's missing three fingers. But uh, once he gets those, then he'll know who he is and what he's doing and stuff. And he ends up in a in a. Uh, an, well, not really an abandoned building, but a, a building that used to be much more populated. Now there's only like three or four businesses working out of it, and it's mm. lots of stairs and a, you know your classic metal mesh elevator going up the middle of it. And, uh, and did he, you recognize the building? I did not. Should I have? Yeah, yeah. It is the Bradbury Building, oh. three hundred four South Broadway, downtown LA. And I'll just give you a, a list. I'm on the IMDb page showing okay. that filming location. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple of names of things that come up that we shot there. Blade Runner. That's right. Yep. Okay. Chinatown. Never saw that one. Oh, it's good, Chinatown. You'd like that. I think, okay. yeah, I think you'd like Chinatown. Many episodes of Pushing Daisies. The Artist. Quantum Leap. Starsky and Hutch, Lethal <laughs> Weapon, Lethal Weapon Four. Oh, it's bad. Oh. The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, w Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. That's I saw that. Film. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad film. I saw uh, that in the movie theaters. It was terrible. <laughs> Murder in the First with Christian Slater and Kevin Bacon and Gary Oldman. That's a great little film. Ah, yeah, it's about a, a abused prisoner at Alcatraz. Okay. Hey. Yeah, great film. Kevin Bacon's brilliant in it. What else do we have? I'm just looking for something else I recognize the name of, and I think it's gone back too far. No, I don't recognize the name of anything else, but I, there's a lot to scroll through. That would explain why the building seems kind of cliche. Yeah. Because <laughs> everything's been filmed there. Pretty much. You've <laughs> seen this building a lot. An episode of CSI New York. Okay. This shot there. Gary Sinise. That's what he's doing now. And so basically he's he's trying to evade these people who are coming back from the future uh because they need they want his hand and he's he's is he a, is he an android or do we ever find out what what sort I mean the the opening narration talks about the uh the the eternal hero yeah. kind of thing he's an android 
but okay. he doesn't know that he is. Okay, right. That that's the that's the clever bit with it. It's like he doesn't know he's an android until he gets all the fingers back on the hand. That's and right. Then, and then you're like, dude, you've got a robot hand. That certainly <laughs> pushed you towards android territory, did it not? You know. But yeah, that that's what happens. One of the better, if not the best, episode of the season, arguably. Yeah, uh, yeah. Except for one, I have one little nitpick with it, and that is Arlene Martell. She falls in love with him. Like, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you, falls in love with him for really not a whole lot of reason. <laughs> and very quickly, yeah. Um, <laughs> this stuff happens on TV and sometimes in movies. It's, yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's just one of those things. <laughs> one of the notes I took future goons as good shots as stormtroopers. It's like they, yeah, they, they shoot at him a lot and miss <laughs> constantly. Yeah, they do. Bless him. And also the, 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 the bad guys all wear like these black jumpsuits and they all have a medallion that, that keeps them in the, in, in the current time. And if they lose the medallion, they're, they're, they, they're, they're killed. They're, they're, they, snap back to the future, but it kills them to do so. And they all wear these medallions outside their shirts. Yeah, I was thinking, you took it in, wouldn't you? you whatever <laughs> happens. Yeah. I'd shove it up my ass where nobody could find yeah, it if it was that like, important. If, if losing this means I die, I'm probably going to, I'm really going to hold on to this a lot. You know, I'm going to pretend I haven't even got one. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. But they don't. They're just hanging there on really clearly two week straps you shouldn't be able to just pull them off yeah i I duct tape that thing like to my taint or something i don't know yeah now then now then cry yeah, of silence oh well well hang on one one thing oh, before, oh, you, we, you wanna... before we move on to, from demon with a glass hand there's, there's one thing i i thought was really impressive you know we, we said arlene martell was in it and she she's very instrumental in helping our hero evade the bad guys because she knows like secret entrances and stuff through the building. But yeah. one thing I was very impressed with was the frank way they discussed domestic violence in this episode because she talks about how her husband like beat the shit out of her. Right. And for 1964 talking about that kind of that, you know, talk about anything other than the, the happy nuclear family was really almost unheard of on television. That that passed me by. I missed that. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, that that's that is very progressive for for this time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just I, I just wanted to mention that that uh, and also another Star Trek connection. Bob Justman was the producer on this episode. Bob Justman was was one of the top three people that made Star Trek TOS and the first season of TNG happen. OK. And there was another actor in there from Star Trek. Oh. Abraham Sophia so far. Hmm. If it was S O F E A R, I'd be fine with it, but it's S O F A E R. I can't okay. pronounce his name, but he was in two episodes of Star Trek. He was the Thasian in Charlie X and just a voice <gasps> oh, in another one. Oh, right. You can't move for Star Trek actors in this <laughs> yeah. series. They're all here. Was it yeah. made next door to Star Trek? What's... Well, I I think we're we're seeing a a a product of the studio 
situation back then in which studios essentially owned, well, I don't want to say owned, that's a little harsh, but you know, they had a stable of actors. Yeah, you would have contract actors. You just don't have that these days, except in porn. But yeah. in real films, yeah, actors and actresses would be contracted to a studio and then that studio would make films with those actors. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're seeing in this. You know, that, you know, DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy, spent a long time as a, as a studio actor before Star Trek where he played mostly bad guys in westerns. Yes, he did. Yes, he did indeed. And uh, wasn't he a... What are the names now? He was uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, he was in Charlton Heston's family. Is it Charlton Heston in that, or is it Burt Lancaster? Ooh, I don't know. I you know I don't know that I've ever seen that one. It's one of the the old classic. Well, you know what it is. It's yeah. one of the 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 old classic westerns. Um, searching now. Burt Lancaster was Wyatt Earp. Kirk My Douglas is Doc Holliday. That's the one. Um, yeah, DeForest Kelly was Morgan Earp. Yeah, that's it. He was an Earp. Mm-hmm. That was the name that wouldn't come to me. Earp. You know what's funny is having grown up watching Star Trek for the longest time, I always thought of the Earps as bad guys. Yeah, no, they're the good. They're, <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, we have this romanticized telling of this this thing. Yeah. Um, and there were good guys and bad guys. And the truth is, it probably took 15 seconds and they were all arseholes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was <laughs> just one of those things. I, I, my mom and dad got to go there on holiday. And just looking at their, their pictures, I have never seen my dad more childlike with glee than <laughs> when he was in, in being a cowboy in the, in the West at the OK Corral. That, that was... <laughs> That was a childhood dream come true for him there. It would probably be the equivalent of me going over there and, and getting to play like a knight. It's exactly like that, pretty <laughs> much. It's exactly like that. You know what? I did do something like that now that I think about it, and I was I was giddy. Um, there are some caves somewhere in the Dartford area, I can't remember the name of them, where they're, they're, they're artificial caves that were carved out uh, as bomb shelters in world war ii and then i think they were also there was some mining and like concerts happened down there and stuff like that um and when i was over there in 1992 there was some uh live action role playing like D D type stuff going on there all right and you could you know if you were an outsider like i was you could rent stuff and go down there and there was, there was no artificial light down there you had to you had to bring your own flashlight and they would they would rent you foam swords and shields and stuff, and you could go down there and do live action role playing. And of course, I had uh, you know experience in you know heavy weapon combat with my with my medieval reenactment stuff. Yeah. And so you know they were like, oh well, here's this American tourist. What good's he going to be? And I was just kicking ass <laughs> left and right because you give me a weapon and my opponent has a <laughs> weapon that's not going to hurt me, and I go I go berserk. It's awesome. Because <laughs> I'd love to, to see that. It was it was fantastic, and they were like, "Dude, can you come back?" I'm like, "I'm going back home tomorrow." Sorry, but it it was amazing doing that in a in a fucking cave, you know, thirty feet underground. It was amazing. Have you ever been around a castle here? I've been to uh, uh, Dartford Castle, I think is what it's called. There's a ruin. I haven't been to one that in in England anyway that wasn't like a ruin. Right. 
Been to a couple in France. If you ever come back here again, I, I want to go to London Tower with you. Okay. Oh, oh, wait. Yes, I have been. Oh, duh, dumbass. To, yes, I have been to the Tower of London. All right. Okay. Yeah. That, that's all right, because that's, that's a good one. Yeah, I don't think of that as a castle for some reason. Um, I, I know, and it's well, and it's called a tower. It's, yeah. you know, it's the tower, and it's it's misleading. But yeah, it's a castle. But we have others that are such and such castle, which is a lot more obvious. <laughs> we there's just so bloody many of them. Yeah, but it's a good one, Tower London, because it's like a thousand years old. So, like literally a thousand years old, as you know, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a fair old bit of history there. Yeah, just a bit. I, I remember the first time I was there, uh, stood in line to, to see the crown jewels. And I just remember looking at the, the, the vault those things are in and just imagining after the, the nuclear apocalypse that England is a glass plane with this big fucking vault just sitting in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would, that would be where I'd want to hide, to be <laughs> honest. It's though, yeah, you've never seen a door that's had its thickness measured in feet until... <laughs> Until that day. Yeah. And as the theory goes, as you know, that they, they aren't even really the real crown jewels. Yeah. The well, real they're, not, they, they're really good fakes. <laughs> well, that's what we say. Like, we all think they're real, but are they really real? That's that's a big conspiracy theory over here. Yeah. Because you, you don't know. Why risk the real ones? Why why do that? Because you'd get shot immediately if you try and <laughs> stall them. That, that would be it. That's why you're not getting anywhere with them. And then if you got them, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, you can't sell them. No. What, what are you going to do? Apart from pretend to be the queen at home. <laughs> and even then you're not realistic. Because she, she's not wearing them. She doesn't, you know, it's not her hat. It's yeah. just, they were there before her and they'll be there after her. They're not hers. So, you know. That's the bad thing about the Queen. She's sort of the ri- one of the richest women in the world, but also not at the same time. Because yeah. none of the things she has are hers. And it's not like she can sell stuff off and things like that. They're not, they're not hers. They're mine. Yep. Which is weird. But <laughs> they are. So Cry should... of Silence. Yeah. Worst episode of anything ever. <laughs> Uh, no, the tumbleweed's got me. Uh, <laughs> uh, what what is it doing to you? I don't. I don't even. I didn't understand that. What is the if a tumbleweed gets you? What is it doing? It's not biting you or or, or <laughs> strangling you or anything. What what is it gonna do to you, really? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's there's a bit of. I won't call it an in joke because it predated things, but uh, something you probably aren't aware of. The the protagonist in this episode played by eddie albert plays a uh you know a a lawyer or whatever who is looking to buy a farm out in the middle of nowhere and get back to the simple life well a couple years later he would star with uh ava gabor in a show called green acres in which a very successful lawyer and his socialite wife move out to a farm in the country to have to live the simple life okay and it was one of those really kind of silly, goofy, early early 70s sitcoms, uh, you know, around the same time as The Munsters and Adam's Family and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. You, you don't want to. It's it. Even as a kid, I didn't like it. And, you know, when you know, when you're eight, you'll watch anything. 
Um, See, I only really know about it because Samuel L. Jackson references the pig in it in the speech about why he doesn't eat bacon in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Arnold the pig. Yeah. Yeah, that's where that's from. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, ha ha, that's cute. But then, yeah, then you find out the, the tumbleweeds are trying to kill them and then, uh, I, don't, I don't even want to relive this one. Yeah, the there's no way around this. <laughs> It's a terrible idea. And his and his wife is just she's the classic sixties era horror film useless female. She yeah. isn't she rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I'm so often and I'm noticing it more and more. And I I'm especially noticing it in modern stuff. Women still get overlooked in moments of tension and action and that sort of thing in TV. Yeah. There's so many, so many situations you see on, it's particularly on action stuff where you think if that was me and Alison and I eventually beat the guy, my first words would be, so where the fuck were you? <laughs> yeah. You, you, did you see the bit where he was just about to kill me and you <laughs> were doing what exactly? Like, you know, at least find something to smash over the back of his head. Anything yeah. like, you know, just, oh, God, woman. You see, so it wouldn't happen like that. It would never happen like that. But it still happens like that on TV mm. all too often. I think no, we need just, to, just, hmm? I, I was just going to say, we need to put our women in more high action situations to kind of build them up on this, I think, and, and get rid of this false image that they'd be useless in such situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, uh, just before I finally gave up on this episode, I wrote down, this is like a bad SNL skit. And then, of course, the, the tumbleweeds, which have been surrounding the house of the scary farmer that found them, go away. And they're like, oh, we can escape. And then suddenly frogs start attacking them. Yeah. And I, I'm not exaggerating, folks. If you remember in Star Trek, The Trouble with Tribbles, when Captain Kirk opens the storeroom and all the Tribbles fall out, and then when they come back from commercial, every now and then a Tribble falls down, and you can you can pretty much imagine the stagehand back there chucking Tribbles at him. It's like, let's see if we can get him in the head with this one. Literally, they're standing there while people off camera are throwing rubber frogs at them. And they don't in any way look like real frogs. I mean, even on a low-res 50s TV set, they would look like bad, just rubber frogs being thrown at them. Ah, oh dear. I, and, and, I, go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it is what it is. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I would have taken the route of not doing it if it looked that awful. Yet, at the same time, someone's written down, frogs fly at them. So... Yeah, frogs are going to fly at them one way <laughs> or another, and we're either going to get some rubber ones or we're going to get some real ones. And who wants to deal with the animal rights people? So we're going to get some rubber ones. <laughs> but they weren't even good rubber frogs. No, no, they weren't. You're absolutely right. They were bad rubber frogs. Oh, uh, and I, I presume you watched to the end of the episode. I read that eventually they give up on the frogs and, and inhabit it. The, the whole thing is an alien consciousness. Yeah. And it inhabits rocks. Well, it, the, the concept is, is that it's sort of like a, an alien intelligent consciousness projected across space and not knowing 
about humans really and that sort of thing and so it's trying to communicate by inhabiting different things and it eventually does get to rocks yes <laughs> it's just ludicrous it, it's like the, the whole the core concept isn't terrible but the way it's executed is yeah. and they take a lot of turns that i wouldn't have taken um but nevertheless there it is yeah i i would recommend folks if you're if you decide you want to watch the twilight or the outer limits just skip cry of silence you just nobody ever needs to see that again yeah um <laughs> Do you know what? I would put it on a playlist with Spock's brain. <laughs> well, at least Spock's brain had a lot of pretty girls in it. So It did. That is one redeeming feature of Spock's brain. But yeah, they, the two things could go together. I'm going to put this playlist of TV shows together. <laughs> the best of comically awful science fiction. Well, I think the next episode could go in that list too. The Invisible Enemy. Is this the... Yes, it is. The Adam this, West one. The Adam West one. Yes. With the really terrible Loch Ness monster puppets. Yeah, it was It was, It was. was truly awful. Um, <laughs> you know, it makes Doctor Who look good, and that, that is saying something really bad about it. This one I didn't enjoy so much as an episode. Yeah. At all. Because it was... I mean, you've got the premise that they've gone to Mars, which apparently has a fucking breathable atmosphere in this tv show we'll we'll go over that for a minute (laughs) there's a like a loch ness monster thing in the sand which is like water for this monster thing and it eats them one at a time and they don't know what's doing it because it lives in the sand and they haven't thought maybe there's a thing in the sand there were just so many frustrating things like all the times they're like don't go out of sight and it's the first thing anyone ever does (laughs) <laughs> let's just go out of sight but he said not to yeah but fuck it and they do that i didn't like this one yeah again it's nice to see adam west not being batman it's nice to see these actors out of their their classic role the the when i say adam west you've just thought of him driving a batmobile or climbing sideways up the side of a building <laughs> that that's what you've done but that's not all adam west is Maybe the younger ones out there thought Family Guy. Yeah. But it, it's nice to see. But, yeah, this one is a weak one. And I'm, I'm looking. This was, this was aired on Halloween of, of 1964. So I wonder if they were going more for trying to be spooky. But it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost the format of like a slasher movie. The way they're sort of picked off one by one and and we know what's doing it, but they don't and that sort of thing. But it's it's really not so well put together. And there were so many just like you just don't go on that bit of the sand then. Yeah. That clearly marked out area. And it keeps going in circles. It's don't go outside. I'm going outside. All right, go outside, but be careful. All right, I'm not being careful. Oh, no, we can't find him. Earth, what should we do? Don't go outside. Well, I'm going outside. That was, Are you that still was outside? It. Yeah, we're outside. Get back inside. No, we're not going to stay outside. Now I'm on a rock. <laughs> yeah. And the sand tide is rising. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, very weak. Yeah. Just just very weak. And, you know, I know that, you know, we try to cut the, the effects some slack, but those are that, I should say. It was only one puppet that they just kept 
make it trying to make it look like there was more than one. It was like yeah. it was like a really bad Loch Ness monster dragon sort of head thing that occasionally also had crab claws <laughs> that really didn't seem to do much of anything. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm just looking up the the writer now. He wrote the Corbomite maneuver episode of Star Trek and two others. You know, I think if this episode had only been half an hour long, it might have worked. I think part of the problem with this one is it just went on so long and kept doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it was just repetitive. Yeah. Just that cycle (laughs) you mentioned. So I'd skip this one. Yeah, just... Uh, yeah, just cry of silence an invisible enemy you don't need to see unless you want to see Adam West doing something other than Batman. Watch the first 15 minutes and then go watch Batman. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Wolf 359. And not a Borg to be seen. Not a single one. A, t- <laughs> a scientist creates a tiny model of another solar system's planet, seeding it with life to study planetary development. I was a little bit disappointed because I expected him to be shrunk down to planet size. And that uh, wasn't, I think that's a Twilight Zone. And I think, I thought it was this, but it wasn't. So I was just disappointed whatever happened. Patrick O'Neill, the the main guy. Yeah. I don't think there was anybody in this one that was a Star Trek alum. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work out where I know Patrick O'Neill from, but it could be any number of things, actually. Two Columbos are in there. I noticed, yeah. so that could be it. Loads of stuff. Yeah. A murder she wrote. Now, what did you think of this episode? I liked most of it. Once I got over the, the, the kind of ludicrous concept, but the, the spandex monster, just, you know, they never explained it, never said what it was, where it came from, why and how it was interacting with Earth. You know, mm. So the concept is the scientists create a miniature version of a planet in the system Wolf 359 that they've seen through their telescopes. And you see this this thing, it's, you know, what, 15 feet in diameter or something through a window, and they've given it this atmosphere. And it's supposed to be a miniaturized, sped-up version of this planet, Wolf 359. And so everything on it is going at, like, what, what did they say? One day was, like, 10 seconds, so its evolution was vastly accelerated and they're watching it through this microscope camera. Yeah. But this, this kind of spooky monster thing, which sort of looks like your classic gray alien head in inside a stretchy fabric that they're poking fingers through sort of a ghost thing keeps showing up and like killing Guinea pigs and stuff. And, and that, that aspect of it was never explained. Now, I don't, you know, I don't mind ambiguity, or, you know, or, you know, I don't expect them always to tie everything up in a neat little bow. But in this series, they usually do tie up everything in a neat little bow. And so for them to just sort of ignore that part of it and not explain it in some way, it, it felt a little weird. It, it feels like, yeah, they're kind of wishing they had another episode to go or something like that. It, it's yeah. that difficult task of fitting your entire universe into 50 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's the thing that causes them to ultimately destroy the planet, which I thought was odd. You know, genocide is a solution to the episode. You know, this planet is populated. It's got, uh, you know, he's looking at it. He's like, oh, they're in, you know, medieval times now. And then they're, you know, 
20th century and he, he witnesses a nuclear explosion on the planet. So it's, you know, there's a population down there. And when this ghost thing is just about to kill him, he's like to his wife, go and smash the window, destroy the planet. Billions of people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it genocide if you are God, though? Is I that, think so. <laughs> there's a great philosophical question for you. That yeah. was the missed opportunity of this episode. You know, they they didn't explain. I kind of thought that's where it was going to go, was that the, the ghost thing, once it finally saw, you know, got to him, I thought it was going to be sort of a, you know, meeting your God sort of thing, but they never went that way. Because you kind of have responsibility for those billions of lives, I, I would imagine. I would. Yeah, you would think so. Even if they're ever so tiny. Yeah. Uh, this, this episode also had Dabney Coleman, who is in everything ever he was he how did i not notice him yeah he must have been like eight years old in this episode <laughs> most recently boardwalk empire but you know what am i reading here war games cloak yeah. and dagger nine to five he and he always plays the asshole boss he does he does indeed but yeah yeah we get to see him naked in nine to five which was oh dear falling. i've never never <laughs> seen the nine to five good movie tootsie was in that yeah oh and uh different strokes yep oh i remember he was the racist guy in different strokes he was the one who taught us about racism in that show he he was the guy that was the biggest he he always played the asshole before the dude from ferris bueller's day off and uh ended up playing the asshole all the time yeah i think he's in jail now is he yeah I think I think there was a, a child abuse Ooh. thing. Well, we won't talk about him then. No. <laughs> and also, but, did you notice that our our friends, the uh, the 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 Loch Ness monster puppets, showed up in the in this episode as one of the when he was looking at the planet and the pictures of their of their uh, their dinosaur era. It was just a picture of one of those things. I thought I recognized it. Of course, yes. Yeah, their dinosaur era. Yeah, because all every planet the same, of course, step to step. Gosh, <laughs> I do you know what? I'd maybe watch this one again. It wasn't bad. It just it 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 just kind of was like I think this one was really trying to be like a Twilight Zone episode, and it just didn't quite make it. It would have been better done if it was the the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I need to watch more Twilight Zone. <laughs> so moving on to iRobot one of the best ones i think yeah and this was based on extra on already published books uh the character the robot's name adam link was in a series of of stories that were in amazing stories magazines and then later became books um so this was an adaptation of the book that was the, the or the story that was the trial of adam link robot which has a slightly different ending, but uh, I was really impressed with this one. I was a little worried when I saw the, you know, the clunky robot, but I think especially for this show, the, the special effects of the robot were really good. I was surprised to find that there was no mention of Asimov in any of the, uh, any of the, the, the materials about this episode. Yeah, I'm just, I was actually just looking for a, a, a writing credit. Yeah, he had nothing to do with this. And yet it's James Cameron that gets sued. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know what you what you have is is classic Asimovian robot tale. A a robot is found over the dead body of his creator and is assumed to be uh, the murderer. And of course, the the, the book this the episode starts off like a page right out of Frankenstein, where a girl is next to a, a river and she sees the robot. She falls into the river. The robot saves her and everybody. She tells everybody that the robot tried to kill her. And then we get sort of a a, a legal you know, Rashomon kind of tale where the robot says one thing and people say another thing and it goes to trial. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. Again, it's one of those things where you have to kind of suck up the premise and go, okay, they're putting a robot on trial. And this is not in a world, uh, a, a universe where robots are commonplace yet. He's like the one and only robot in the world. And, and I was actually surprised by the ending too. I was stunned when he was found guilty. Yeah. It's, hmm. I I really I, expected it to have a yeah. happy ending. They they tended to have happy endings. Again, another Twilight Zone difference there. Yeah. Now, again, I, I, I I'm just going to read my notes here. Okay. The first two things I wrote: Frankenstein, of course, which mm-hmm. you know the 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 write up of the episode freely admits it's Frankenstein riff. Holy shit, Nimoy. Oh yes, Nimoy. I was not expecting him. <laughs> yeah, very young Leonard Nimoy is the is the the reporter who actually instigates the trial. See, and he's another great performer. Mm-hmm. Um, we've recently talked about him at length. A reason to watch this alone, regardless yeah. of what happens in it. But it, it just so happens it's pretty good anyway. So you should just watch this one, basically. He play he plays something of a of a, a sleaze ball, but you know he's he's one of those guys that does the right thing for the wrong reason sort of thing. Look, getting to see him play a role that different, yeah. is just great in itself. Just seeing him smile on camera always freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, it is odd, isn't it? It is odd. I I have to draw attention to the IMDb trivia for this episode, which Please is do. just one item that simply says this episode follows a similar plot. Uh, a name to the 2005 movie I Robot. Just yeah. leaves me thinking. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> think you've got it the wrong way round. But yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. So I I recommend this one. Yeah, and and for 1964, the robot costume is really good. I liked how they they did his voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you've got to you've got to accept that the 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 monotone I am a robot and I will talk like this kind of thing is going to happen. But I think even given that the performance of whoever was doing the voice of the robot was really good. I mean, and this was from a time when they couldn't even say robot. So (laughs) I forgive him. Yeah. Uh, Also, Oh, there was, there was one other uh, Star Trek alum in there in the trial. The uh, one of the, one of the, the expert witnesses, Professor Hebel, John Hoyt, was Dr. Boyce, who was the Enterprise's doctor in the cage. All right. Okay. He was one where I was like, I know that face. Where do I, is he, is he Star Trek? Who, you know, a lot of times, pretty much at the end of every one of these episodes, I would like freeze it when they were listing who was, who was the, you know, the guest stars. And I'd have to go look them up and find out who was who. And he was one who was like, ah, okay. Now I know why I recognize him. They get everywhere, these Star Trek people. Yep. Let's move on, because we've gone very long here. Yeah. 
The Inheritors, a two-part episode. Very, very good episode, I think. I think this is this. If I were to pick one that was the best of the series, I, this would be my, my one. I would consider these both one episode. Yeah. Fantastic. Very, very Arthur C. Clarkish, I think. A little, a little melodramatic, but then, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, the time. A, a, we start off with a soldier in the jungles of Korea. He gets shot and then doesn't die. And they find out he's got two different brain patterns going on in his head. And then you've got him and three other people across the country who are in similar situations. And they seem to be doing something. And they don't know why they're doing it. And they're not being particularly sinister, but you've got a... a well, it's uh, Robert Duvall. I, I was going to say that's the most important part of this. It's Robert Duvall. Yeah. And, he, and he's brilliant because mm-hmm. he's Robert Duvall. <laughs> and and to, to, game, to see him just doing this little two-part TV series from 50 years ago is amazing. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, everybody started off as nobody. Exactly. You're <laughs> absolutely right. But he was just so watchable in this yeah just so watchable i'm just scrolling through to see if he'd done anything that i recognized before this and it was to kill a mockingbird oh um, which was now that i have seen which is yeah. the best movie ever made now that came out two years before this was shot but it was still a long time it looks until he was doing anything of uh film note gosh Hang on. Then what was a good film he was? Ah, he was in Mash. Okay, never yeah, seen that. Yeah, he was Frank Burns, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. True Grit. But I think it might. Yeah, THX one one three eight, and then The Godfather, and then Boom. Yeah, Apocalypse Now is where I think he really took off. Yeah, uh, but he it was it was good to see that he's just always been awesome. Yeah. There's not a lot of difference in his performance in this to The Godfather. He's as confident, has the same screen presence. He's brilliant. This is worth watching just to see Robert Duvall. Yeah. And it's a good story. It, you know, you've, you've got an, up until the point where they start gathering the children, then the creep factor really ratchets up. But you've got these people who are taken over by aliens who are building a starship. And what they eventually do is gather up a bunch of children who are damaged. Uh, you know, some of them can't walk. Some of them are blind, deaf, dying of terminal illnesses or, and stuff. And, of course, it's, the whole thing is, a, is a, it's, it's basically a chase thing where Robert Duvall and his, his – he's a cop. Is he a cop? He's, he's more like a government agent. Yeah, cop doesn't feel right. I'm, I'm looking this up now. Assistant Secretary of Science. Oh, that's right. Which I was like, huh? (laughs) There's a Secretary of Science, and that (laughs) that person needs an assistant. But Assistant Secretary of Science, not Assistant to the Secretary of Science. I see, yeah. Um, Yeah, very odd. Um, But but he's chasing these guys who are doing nothing illegal, just doing stuff kind of strange, until they start gathering up the kids and then then it gets then it gets creepy it's a nice twist on uh don't know the name but i'm thinking of the next gen episode when is it troy chief o'brien 
God, I want to say Keiko get possessed. Oh, not Keiko, yeah. is it? It's someone else. No, it's, it's oh, data. Keiko. It's data. Yeah. It's data because he wants to fight Worf with, with the android body. When they get possessed and taken over and, and to carry out their evil plan, they've just added the whole... I mean, on Star Trek, when, when Chief O'Brien starts acting weird, it's only going to be a couple of weeks before anyone notices. Whereas... <laughs> You know, whereas in in this this show, these people are like, "You're fine, go out, bye, yeah. off into America," and then it's like, "Oh, we think they're doing something weird." Well, where are they? I don't know. We, yeah. we sent them home. They they were fine. Like, I think maybe if people are shot in the head with machine gun bullets, you should and don't die. You should probably investigate that more to begin yeah. with. I think. So it's a nice way, and I like that they took two parts over it. Yeah. I think it split it well, and it, it, it was enough of a story to pull me through. And as I might have mentioned before, Robert Duvall. Yeah. <laughs> and it and it's it's got a nice ending in that I think if this had been made now, it would have gone really dark really fast, whereas this one ended up with a very positive, happy, yeah, happy ending. But I, I liked how Duvall, you know, he stuck to his guns literally – the main, the main guy, uh, Lieutenant Minns, probably, you know, he had that Jedi mind shit going on where he could make pretty much anybody do anything, but he never used it on Duvall. And even Duvall was like, all right, I believe you that you're, ben- that you're, you're, you know, you're benign and that you're, you're going to help these kids, but I can't let you take them. And then, yeah, I, I don't remember. Does he, does, does Minns hypnotize him or, or? Did they just kind of walk out and go, oh, okay, what happened there? I don't remember now. I'm having trouble. Sorry. That's okay. I should, I should make notes. <laughs> I ran out. Did I, did I write down anything about the ending? I ran out of paper and pens after making notes on Moonraker. That, that's what did me down. I think I used up every pen in the house. Oh, there is another, there is a Star Trek person in this one. The kid who, who, kept like looking out through the window of the house. Yeah. His mother was played Mira Romaine in the lights of Zatar. Uh, she was one of, one of Scotty's women and the incorporeal beings took her over and, and, uh, yeah, it's a rather obscure episode. <clears throat> I did find sometimes the soundtrack for this one got in the way cause it was very Godzilla, uh, when all Minz was doing was like walking down the street and it was like, dun, 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 and like nothing's happening. That, that, <laughs> that, that is sort of another 1960s thing um, yeah. that we've, uh, that has come up on shaken, not stirred actually of the use of wildly inappropriate music for not much happening on screen. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a scene in Doctor No where where Bond first flies out to Jamaica, and the music's there, a big music, and he's just walking slowly through the airport. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is really inappropriate. Just any other music would be better than that right now. You save the James Bond music for when he's kicking ass. Not yeah. for when he's strolling through a building. <laughs> you just don't. Or you use the quiet James Bond music with the guitar bit for that. Yeah. You don't do what they did. Um, so I kind of feel like maybe... Do you know what? I'm going to say things like 
sound and filmmaking and television was all still relatively in its infancy at this point. I'll, yeah. And there was still a lot to learn. Yeah. A lot to learn. By the end of watching this series, I wanted to find the inventor of the theremin and strangle him. It's a spooky instrument, though. You've got to have a theremin. It is, but it was way overused. I think it, it's it's one of those things that a little bit of it goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually going to mention the music in general. What I did like um, is that they had a continuing, there was Outer Limits music. Yeah. None of it was unique to the episode in particular. And so while it was still an anthology show, I always felt like I'm watching The Outer Limits. There's no doubt that I'm watching The Outer Limits. Comments on writing and acting ability aside, you know, the the audio decor of the show was always consistent. And I I actually really appreciated that they did that. Um, I thought it was in probably budget saving, probably time saving, but ultimately works well. Yeah, I'll I'll grant you that. I I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, but you're right. It, there, there was a very, I don't want to say homogenized, but a, there, there was a through line in the, in the music that, that tied it all together. I hadn't thought of it. There might be a name for that, that people who studied music more closely <laughs> than I have could tell you. It feels like there should be a word for that. I'm going to move us on. Yes, absolutely. To the, was it Keeper of the Purple Twilight next? Yes, it is. A driven scientist is approached by an unearthly being who offers to exchange his alien intelligence in return for the experience of human emotions. Their experiment, however, has unforeseen consequences for both of them, and soon a team of alien enforcers has arrived to destroy both of them and the scientist's wife. What does she do? That's just cruel. (laughs) Well, she... she, Okay. Well, first of all, there's there's a big Star Trek tie-in and a very interesting one in this episode. Okay, the scientist who was played by Warren Stevens was in the Star Trek episode by any other name, where he played Rojan, who was the, the leader of a group of aliens from Andromeda that took over the Enterprise. It was one where people were turned into little cubes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And... The way the Enterprise crew defeated Rojan and his people was that when they became humans, they took on human emotions. And so, like, Scotty got the one guy drunk, and that's where the It's Green came from. Yeah, yeah. Kirk kept hitting on Rojan's woman and creating jealousy, and another guy was, McCoy was irritating this guy and making him angry. And that's the exact same thing that happens in this episode, is the alien, Icar, takes Professor Plummer's emotions and then can't do his job because he's got the emotions which i thought was really kind of it was interesting that this actor was in this episode where in later he would be on the other side of the equation in a star trek episode but the same thing it's crazy how these things work out isn't it yeah and another guy his his david hunt uh one the the guy with the money yeah uh edward platt who was the chief in get smart Yes, and lots of other things as well. Mm-hmm. People have worked after being on this show. Yeah, There's yeah. no doubt about that. <laughs> My gosh. Now, again, this is another one where it's the relationship between the protagonist, or our protagonists, I think, because Icar and Professor Plummer are kind of equally 
but it's the relationship between them and the wife, Janet, that really drives this episode because Icar falls in love with her or he, because he's got plumber's love, you know, he's in love with her and she's, you know, she's kind of plays up on it uh, and uses it to defeat him. Although I thought it was odd that, you know, we've got the, the four alien enforcers show up at the end or the three alien enforcers or whatever. Yeah. And they all get killed and everyone's like, okay, we're, we're fine now. There were, there were only four total. I thought there was an invading army on its way. <laughs> Yeah, we got these four, so that counts. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think. I don't know that there's really much else to talk about this episode. I, yeah, I don't have a lot to say, I must admit. Yeah, it was just a pretty straightforward alien invasion thwarted by human emotion sort of thing. Got to be born with them or, or you just can't handle it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we're so good at it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> This next one is odd because uh, The Duplicate Man was written by Clifford Simak, who is a well-known science fiction author. And I guess the concept is okay. It was just the, ep- the execution of this one was pretty cheesy, especially the, the, the beastie, the, the megazoid, you know, the, the furry bird yeah, monkey thing. Yeah, that, that was such an odd monster, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, here th- this one takes place in two th- all the way in 2011, which... I, I chuckled at that and then I thought, wow, that's really sad that what seemed like the impossibly distant future to them is years ago for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, it's the future, but all of the house interiors look like now or now then, except you've got like this boxy video phone that has a dial. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I, oh, I, and he's like, he's got a future gun, which was just a 38 with a couple of things glued to it. Yeah. And, a, and then the, 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 the caretaker of the museum leaves with that future lunchbox. <laughs> I, was... I, there's so many wonderful little things. I, I love it when the hint, the things they dream about for the future and not only stuff from our past, but things that were just a shit idea, <laughs> yeah. like, like the big video phone. So we've been there. No one wants that really. Nope. <laughs> no one wants to be seen. It's, it, you just think it's a fun idea because you've not had Skype built into your television. Yeah. <sighs> and now it's, we know it's all stupid. Yeah. And then at one point, somebody puts something on his desk and there's a close-up of the desk and it's just like, future clipboard! <laughs> it's just a clipboard yeah. with shit glued on it. <laughs> it's how you make anything future Just put... Yeah. They don't know it, but they're actually just adding Bluetooth to everything. <laughs> that's what they're doing and the the monster in this one's not that good like you said it's it's really really so it is a bird dinosaur thing yeah it, it's got a beak hasn't it i'm remembering that right yep yep and the, the 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 plot line of this is that uh in 2011 mankind has kind of conquered the galaxy and they fought this race called the Megasoids, who were the most aggressive species ever. And there's one in a museum, but it's dead. Or is it? Um, yeah. And they're sort of telepathic. And so this guy who was a, a, a you know, billionaire scientist cons this space pilot into smuggling one onto Earth, even though that's like a capital offense or something. And, of course, it gets away and... It's amazing how often we exhibit things in museums without really realizing that they're dead. Yeah. 
Yeah. I am waiting for the day the shit hits the fan at the British Museum when all those mummies get up. <laughs> we thought they were dead. No. <laughs> no, they're just resting for a really long time. And that's what the Megazoid was doing. Yeah. In this episode. He's not. He's just pretending. He's just still when, no one's, when everyone's looking at him. What's... <laughs> And then there's this really strange plot line where the guy has a duplicate of himself made illegally so that it can kill the Megazoid. But, of course, the duplicate becomes sentient. It's kind of Blade Runner-ish. No, that's the sixth day with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he has a clone of himself. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen that. There's two Arnies. (gasps) Twice the fun. And Robert Duvall. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sit for an hour and a half going, Robert Duvall, why? <laughs> At a mortgage why? payment. <laughs> it, honestly, it was like, I wanted a new boat, and uh, this film came up. It's not that bad. But two Arnies. It's it's, yeah, it's a whole cloning thing. That okay. They it's all right. Uh, this this wasn't a bad episode. It certainly dealt with some interesting ideas. I just think the the, the, the beast, the Megazoid itself, was so ridiculous that it almost ruined it. But again, it's 1965. Yeah, and it, it wasn't the worst of the monsters, but still not great. It was it was right up there with the Mugatu from Star Trek, which was just a white gorilla suit with a horn yeah. on the his head. Yeah. Um, shall we move on? Yeah. To the, this next one is, in my opinion, the second worst of the series. I almost turned this one off, except I kept dozing off, so I got a nap out of it. Fair enough. <laughs> Counterweight. Six men and two women volunteer to be locked into a mock spacecraft and un- undergo a simulated space mission to a distant planet. However, a series of strange events lead paranoia and suspicion growing between them. Yeah, that'll do that. Yeah. Oh, I feel like there was someone in this episode I recognized a lot. Uh, the guy that played Joe Dix, who I have described in my notes as a bag of dicks, uh, the... the the real estate guy who was looking to make billions. Michael he's, Constantine. He's been in everything, too. He's one of those that guy. Oh, gosh. 177 actors. acting credits. Yeah. Still going. Actually. Still going. Wow. Yeah. The Cosby Mysteries. That's not going to get a replay anytime soon, is it? Airwolf. MacGyver. Magnum. Remington Steel. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a Quincy. Yeah, this is yeah. quite a quite a resume there, sir. Quite a resume. It, I didn't feel it was turn it off bad, but I'm not in a rush to see this ever again. Again, this is another one that might have been good as a as a half hour exploration of what happens when you put a bunch of people in isolation. Well, I, I've seen similar things done as horror movies, and it works yeah. out all right. Yeah. Well, first we had the, the the premise is that they they're they're trying to prep people for a trip to this planet, uh, Re- Altheon or something like that, and so as an as, you know as a test, which is you know stuff they're doing now, put a bunch of people in a in an environment similar to what they would be in for the trip, and don't let them out until it's over, until they you know the two hundred days or whatever is up, but they they're trying to test the viability of sending untrained non astronauts. And so what you've got is you've got a real estate broker and a, and a 
biologist and and uh, not a reporter and you know stuff like that. And of course, the the friction starts almost right away, and then weird shit happens and and uh, you know things that shouldn't be there. And you all the time you're seeing this light being moved from person to person. Oh god, there's this one scene where they're all sleeping. And it goes from one person to the next, and the scene must have been fifteen minutes long. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it just w- yeah, and and it was I'm, I'm so you. you had to see the thing slowly crawl down the wall and go into each person's ear. I'm like, can't we just cut to the chase on these, please? Yeah, this this was an example of things taking far too long. Yeah, and then you had, I, I you know I know, and we keep sort of repeating this even given them credit for not having a whole lot of time and money for, for special effects, that stop motion plant thing at the end was just, I kept, I kept thinking of was the red dwarf episode with the, with the, the chameleonic life form. Yeah. It, it was, it was bad, wasn't it? Yeah. And it fell out of place actually. Yeah. Cause they hadn't done anything like that before. Yeah. And I kept expecting them to say, Psych, this wasn't a simulation, you're really in space, then I would have I would have bought the monster a little better. But but since it was a simulation and it, yeah. it never wasn't, it just felt yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Let's skip on to uh the brain of Colonel Barham. This was okay. It was kind of your classic brain in a jar goes bad yeah. sort of thing. Seen it. Yeah. I, I don't have much to say about this. It, it was fine. It was okay. Yeah. It was, like like we said, seen it. I, I give it, uh, the one thing I'll give it credit for is daring to have the psychology, okay, the, you've got a, a an astronaut, they're getting ready to try to send a ship to Mars. You've got an astronaut who's been pivotal in, in developing the program, but they're finding out that their their automated machinery just isn't up to the task. And this mad scientist has come up with an idea to put a human brain into the machinery. But who are they going to pick? Well, of course, this guy has a terminal illness, and so he'd be perfect. And so they talk him into it, and then they put him in the machine, and he goes crazy and tries to become – and becomes, you know, I am a god, and I'm going to kill all of you. And then, of course, they blow up the brain in the jar. But what set this aside – a little bit was that the psychiatrist who was treating the guy before he became a brain in a jar and objected to the pro- the whole process actually kind of started hitting on the dude's wife after he'd been put into the jar. And I thought, A, bad form guy, <laughs> but, uh, but also the fact that they would go there, that they, they, they even sort of hinted that, that something was going on between them and yeah. was starting to, to develop. I thought that was kind of a, a nice little touch there that they had the the cojones to do that yeah other than that just standard 60s sci-fi kind of stuff very much what's the next one i've lost my page the premonition and this was another one i i liked the story uh a test pilot crashes his wife crashes at the same time in her car because she's coming to watch the flight and they find out that they're stuck kind of in between moments in time and can't really affect anything but his plane and her car. And there's a lot of running back and forth. <laughs> there, There is, isn't there? A lot of that. I'm going to say this one also struggled from being half an hour too long. Yeah. We yeah. could have got through this story in much less time. Or you could have taken your time with it a lot more over with another half an hour. But 51 minutes, bad time for it. Yeah. 
Now, I will say that had I watched this episode more than four years ago, it wouldn't have resonated with me as much as it did now because the kind of the whole crux is they find out that their daughter, it, you know, time isn't stopped. It's moving very slowly. So we have a little bit of a shades of, of wink of wink of an eye and Star Trek that's coming up later. Yeah. But their daughter is, they see her on a tricycle and they realize that she is heading toward getting squished by a truck. And so they're trying to figure out how to stop that, but they can't affect anything. And then that situation hit me a lot harder as a parent because I found his kind of, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it, really pissed me off. Yeah. You know, she was appropriately freaking out about the situation. And he was just like, well, I, we can't really do anything, so why get upset? And uh, uh, Yeah, that's not how people react to their kids being squashed by trucks. No. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, it's an upsetting thing. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with but, you. But, you know, that, that's when I realized, wait a minute, this is the Outer Limits from 1965. They're not going to kill the kid. So, of yeah. course, he figures out a way to... It would be it would just be the most distressing thing I've ever seen if they just did that in the penultimate yeah. episode of the Outer Limits. <laughs> that that would really upset me, I think. Um Finally. Finally. The probe. The probe. This was a good one. Yeah. Really enjoyed this one. And and I'm I'm actually kind of proud of myself about something on this one. You've got a bunch of people. Now you you should have recognized one guy in this one. Peter Mark Richmond. Yep. I did recognize him. Absolutely. From all over the place, but of course most prominently from uh, the next gen episode where he's unfrozen. Yep. And gives tries to give Captain Picard a good, good talking to <laughs> and finds out that that is not something one does. No. <laughs> uh, that episode would be the neutral zone. Yeah. And, uh, which With- was also the first time we saw the Romulans in TNG. It was indeed. I also would mention that in the same year, he also starred in Bonanza, The Next Generation. So <laughs> I forgot that even happened. Yeah. <laughs> Everything was The Next Generation for him that year. <laughs> Actually, I tell a lot, he did a lot of work that year because he's been in everything ever made. Yep. Um, he's another one of these people. Another that guy. Yeah. But you'd, you'd recognize him, I think. I actually recognize his voice more than anything. Very distinctive. Yeah, he, he kind of plays sort of a dickish, brusque fellow really well. Yes, I would say so. So you've got a bunch of people on an airplane, four or five guys and a woman, and they're trying to get her to her wedding, but they find themselves suddenly in the middle of a hurricane and they crash in the ocean and then wake up in their in their uh, lifeboat, but they're in some sort of room. And then they, they quickly discover that they're they're inside an an alien probe and they're being studied but this thing comes out and i i I called it the horda squid dog thing and i thought i wonder and i did some i did some checking and the the mickey as it was called was designed and performed by janos prohaska right who also designed and performed the horda yeah also inside the gorn and I believe was inside the Mugatu as well. All right. So just watching that thing, I was like, I'll bet that's the same dude that made the Horda. And, yeah. Uh, and I was right. Not that there probably were a lot of other people doing shit like that in the 1960s, but. Uh, no, he will have been the go-to guy for that sort of thing, I would imagine. 
Yeah. Wow. It, it's amazing how much this just all influences Star Trek. Yeah. I, right, this is a, a reason to watch The Outer Limits. That's that's what it is. You've got to know your sci-fi history, and this is a key part of it. Absolutely. For better Absolutely. or worse, you've you've got to see this. It is not Space 1999. There are high points. It is some yeah. of it's worth watching. I I enjoyed it. I, I really did. I did too. I, I actually, when I finished watching The Probe two nights ago, I was like, okay, cool, what's next? And then my, my Hulu clicked over to the Twilight Zone. I was like, wait, that's it? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> it just got good. What is this, Enterprise? Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, the, epi- the, the series was canceled halfway through the second season. So there were only 17 episodes in the second season. Such is television. Yep. Such is television. The new ones were okay as well, some of them. I, I think I remember watching was was that was Forrest Whitaker the host of that? I don't remember there being a host. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of he it was something else. Never mind then. A few years back they did something and maybe it was trying to do a new Twilight Zone. I don't know. There's been talk of that for a while, hasn't there, and all kinds yeah. of things. But yeah, it was it was all right. Yeah, I might, this, I might this find was a fun watch. watch. Yeah. And and the nice thing about these anthology shows is when you do get to one like, you know, the cry of silence and you don't you can skip them without losing anything. Yeah. Yeah, you can. You can. It's just ones you haven't seen and you're not missing out. I would watch them anyway, but that's just me. Yeah. I you know, I think with with Cry of Silence it just hit me. I I was I was home alone, which is a rarity for me. Uh, you know, it was during yeah. the day. I was home alone. I was actually in the living room watching on the t- on the main TV, and just kind of chilling. And I got halfway through that one, and I was just like, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time before everybody comes home. I don't want to waste it watching this shit. <laughs> I turned it off and, and went and did something else. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's better but, things to do. Yeah, I I think if I had been like sitting out here in my office, uh, like I watched most of it, I probably would have finished it. Uh, it wasn't so awful that I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm going to kill myself if I watch any more of it. You know, so even at its worst, I think it's it's better than reality TV. <laughs> yeah. And it's good. Like you said, it's this is this is where the shows we love came from. These are the foundations, you know, this, the Twilight Zone movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still and, and Forbidden Planet. If you are a science fiction fan, and I would assume you are if you're listening to this show, this is where the stuff we love came from. Yeah. And it's really good to, it's, it, we live in an unprecedented age where we can go back and see where the stuff we, we dig now started. And so we can get this whole historical context that, you know, our grandparents never were able to get. Yeah. And I think it's worth, it's, it's, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this show is this is stuff that shouldn't be forgotten. Even when it's awful, even when it's lost in space, we, we need to remember why we don't do that anymore or why we shouldn't do that anymore. Absolutely, because otherwise we'll be doomed to repeat these mistakes. Yeah. And before you know it, there'll be another TV show where somebody turns into a carrot. <laughs> and it won't be ironic. <laughs> no, it won't. So, you know, got to watch these things really closely and learn from them. I have a suggestion for our next one, if you're ready for that. I am prepared for this. I also have a suggestion. Oh, well, so, you, you, 
I've picked the last all of them, so you go with yours. My suggestion, and this is based only on me remembering that it existed and the opening credits as a child, so okay. it might be awful, and I have no particular emotional attachment to it, so if it makes you bulk, just that's fine. But the series that I was going to suggest is The Invaders. I have always wanted to watch that. Me and too. And I've never seen it. I have it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it can be watched. Okay. I remember as a child, one of my relatives gave me a book from The Invaders as, right. a, as a Christmas present. And so I was aware that it was a show, but it was never playing on any channel that I could watch it. So, uh, yeah, I would love to do that. Well, that's it then. We'll we'll do that one. Okay. Is it one of those one-season wonder shows? or? Uh... Let's have a look, because I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I think there are two seasons of it, and I, th I don't think it's... it's uh, 67 to 68 looks like it was one, according to IMDb. No, I have two seasons here. Oh, no, it is two seasons. You're right. So I suppose season one is the one to go for. Okay. Being that neither of us have seen it. Sounds good to me. Yeah, my, my suggestion was going to be Logan's Run, but that can wait. <laughs> okay, but I'd be prepared to do Logan's Run. That's fine. We can do that afterwards. When we get to it, what I'd like to do is do the movie, kind of you know, change things up a bit since, it's, since it is based on a movie. Okay. Uh, I thought we'd, we'd watch the movie and then watch the TV show, and then we can compare and contrast. Okay. I have seen the movie. I'm down with that. As have I, and I'm, I'm always glad to watch that one again. It's fun. Jenny Agata. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, That's all I need to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, I think we've... we've well, that is the most in-depth analysis of The Outer Limits Season 2 that has ever been created or will ever be created. <laughs> I think you are correct. And for those of and you... I had a blast. Yeah, I did too. Thank you for that. For those of you listening, it's 10 to 4 in the morning here right now. That's when we do these things. I'm pleased with this. <laughs> and people go to me, why don't you sleep? It's because I stay up till four in the morning talking about the outer limits. <laughs> I wouldn't do any other job because they wouldn't let me do this. So if you, we never had an email. Not yet. We don't, do we, I don't know what we do with email, really. You can email us if you want. Yeah. Oh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We'll, yeah. we'll certainly talk about it if you do. Ray Guns and Go Go Boots at simplysyndicated.com. Feel free to drop us a line. Or there's the inquiries form on the there's a contact us form on the website that works as well. We will be back in the future with another episode of this show when we've digested season one of The Invaders. Yeah. Which will yeah. be a couple of weeks. Don't be holding your breath or anything. You know, we never said this was weekly. <laughs> So, you know, bear with us, but we'll get to it and we'll be back. We're we're on to nearly a here goes nothing length episode of show anyway. So I think we're making up for the Yeah. The the bigger gaps. And once we've done like a hundred and fifty of these, it'll be great. <laughs> so just hundred and forty five more to go. There we go. <laughs> and we'll be fine. So thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back another time with another show. Bye bye. Bye-bye.